0: Good morning. Being adopted into God's family, being made a son or daughter of God, is the highest privilege of the good news. Being adopted into God's family, being made a son or daughter of God, secondly, must be the controlling thought, the normative category, the controlling paradigm of the Christian life. I have been looking forward to getting to preach on this truth from God's Word ever since the session, Preston and Kevin and the elders chose the theme for our church-wide retreat, which is next week, and this sermon designed to lead into that this theme of adoption, sonship. And I appreciated their basic uh, philosophy, I suppose. I think Dick Vitale puts it best, go big or go home, right? This theme, I I would have come to a church-wide retreat if it was on anything. I, there might be some other topics that we thought might be more helpful, more relevant for us, maybe a church-wide retreat on finances or uh, living as a citizen in this current political climate with red states versus blue states. Um, Knowing me and my situation, I was a little disappointed that they didn't have a church-wide retreat on how to sell a house in zip code 06119 (laughs) and how to live by faith in the meantime. But apparently they chose not to go small, but to go big. And it really is true what we've said already. I was using the summary from J.I. Packer, probably the greatest living theologian, this idea that adoption, sonship, the two points he's making here, it's the highest privilege of the good news, the highest privilege of the gospel, and it must be the controlling thought. It must be, as it, as it were, I'll be at different points in the sermon looking, putting these reading glasses on so I can see the text a little more clearly. You have to put on the glasses of your awareness of your sonship, being a son or daughter of God, in order to see anything, to see anything clearly. I can maybe see the text without these glasses, but without an awareness of your being a son or daughter of God, everything is blurry. So hold that thought. That's what this whole sermon is about, and in fact, what the church-wide retreat will be about next week. But I've got another thought for you at this point, and that's this. Are you aware, and how regularly do you dwell on the fact, that your life is a profound and statistically impossible miracle? Miracle. Statistically, it is impossible that you exist. Now, you can help do the math with me. I'm not a mathematician. I'm just setting aside altogether all the, uh, the, uh, the necessary components that had to be in place for there to even be life on this planet, this statistic impossibility. But I'm thinking of it just in terms of how is it possible that you were born? How is it possible that I was born? How is it possible that any living person was born? It takes a biological father and mother, that's two parents, and then it takes four grandparents, eight great-grandparents. Now, do the math, and I did the math for you. Just go back, let's just say, a hundred generations. If you go back a hundred generations how many biological pairings would there have had to have been? Now, you can quickly use your, your phone if you'd like, but here, I did the math for you. It is, th- this is, so two parents, four grandparents, and so on, so on. A hundred generations back, roughly 4,000 years ago, if a generation is 40 years, there were, there had to have been this, this number of biological pairings. One non-million 267 octillion, 650 septillion, 606 trillion, 228 quintillion, 229 quadrillion, 401 trillion, 496 billion, 703 million, 205 thousand, Now, given that a biological pairing, you know, we're not going to need to cover anybody's ears here, but the chances of a conception, and then that conception leading to fertilization to an actual birth, is roughly speaking, in a given month, 7%. So would you place a gamble, all the existence of your very life, on a 7% bet that you have to win that many times in a row without a single loss that would doom everything? A hundred generations ago, it was impossible that you would be alive, that I would be alive. It's statistically impossible. Now that's just the math. That's just, I'm just doing the math. My question was, is how often do you consider that? How often do you consider that your life is actually a profound and impossible miracle? Or another way of asking it is, given this reality, why don't we feel that way? Deeply. Holistically. Touching every part of our lives. And abidingly. There's this wonderful place in another passage where Paul talks about his prayer, and our need to see how deep and how broad and how long and far the love of God is for us. How, how often do you consider this reality, that your life is a profound and impossible miracle? How deeply do you feel that way? How holistically do you feel that way? How abidingly do you feel that way? Um, I think the last time I preached, I told one of the silliest uh, old jokes ever. And here's another silly old joke. It's about the man that goes to his psychiatrist and he's worried and burdened with anxiety and he meets with a psychiatrist for a while and then eventually he comes back with a diagnosis and he says, I've got some good news and some bad news. The good news is, you're not paranoid. The bad news is, is everyone is out to get you. Why don't you, why don't I, Dwell deeply and abidingly in this reality that our lives are a profound and impossible miracle, the good news is there is a conspiracy afoot that does not want you to believe that. The combination, as Christian theologians forever have said, of the world, the flesh, and the devil conspire against you to keep you from dwelling in the love that God has for you. Think about it, and I'm not a historian, I'm not a mathematician, I'm, really I'm just good, not much of anything, honestly, but uh, not a historian, certainly not a military historian, but in the Battle of Gettysburg in the Civil War, there was this one particular moment, and this one particular part of the battlefield called Little Round Top, that if that part of the battlefield could be, Taken and seized, it could control the whole battlefield. And if J.I. Packer is correct, which he is, and the scriptures will show that to us today, that adoption, sonship, being a son or daughter of God is the highest privilege of the gospel, and is must be the controlling paradigm of your life. If that's true, that's the little round top of the battlefield of your life. That's the part of your conscience and your mind that the world, the flesh, and the devil are constantly conspiring to steal from you so that you don't realize and don't live deeply and abidingly with the awareness of how profoundly created you were by God. There's never been anyone like you, never can be another person like you, and you're the result of some bizarrely complex number of statistical improbabilities to be here and now. That's the little round top this awareness that we are indeed the sons and daughters of God. This is the little round top of our Christian life. It must be the controlling thought, the normative category, the controlling paradigm of our Christian lives. With that in mind, we'll turn to our text now, and please join me in prayer once more. Great God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that it rolls off our tongues now, hopefully for most of us, to call you Father. But we remember how profound it was that Jesus Christ came to reveal that truth to us in deep and abiding ways, that you are indeed our Heavenly Father. Thank you for the privilege you've given us of this life, and thank you for this moment strengthen us now in our faith, our hope, our love. Open our eyes, open our hearts in every respect that we would drink deeply of this good news that you have for us. In Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen. So let's look now at this text. And if you don't mind, I'm going to read it one more time. This is, the text itself is what we know to be pure and without any flaw. My preaching may indeed be impure and flawed. So let's read the text itself one more time. Galatians 3, beginning at verse 23. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until that coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. Now notice how Paul begins this passage here that the coming of Christ was in order for something to happen. What is it that had to happen? There it is in verse 23, verse 24. The coming of Christ was in order that we might be justified by faith. Uh, J.I. Packer also puts it this way, that there's no question in, in light of, of the, the restoration and retrieval of the deep truths of Scripture Throughout the, especially the time of the Reformation, but before, during, and after, that indeed the deepest truth of the Christian life, the most important truth, is justification by faith. But it's not the highest privilege. The highest privilege is being made a son or daughter of God. But here's our first point this morning, and it's right from our text. Apart from the foundation of justification by faith, being living as a son or daughter is actually of God is actually impossible. It's impossible for the conscience to maintain being a true son or daughter of God if you haven't pre, pre, haven't already received justification. And what we mean by that is, as this text says, the full forgiveness of sins the removal of the law as that which would condemn from being over you anymore. And so we see right away that there is a problem that happens often in the Christian life. And Paul, I'm almost positive, with Peter's full permission, uses Peter as exhibit A of that problem here in the book of Galatians. In the context leading up to our text this morning, Paul had described how one of the other great apostles, Peter, had fallen backwards, away from grace, as it were, and had taken back upon himself the burden of the law, as if there were certain aspects of keeping the ceremonial law, even the moral law, that were utterly necessary for him in order for him to have the full approval Of his heavenly father. So essentially, Paul uses Peter as a case study of something that happens to all of us pretty often. And that's this idea where we try to live as if God is our father while still allowing the law of God to be our true daddy. Condemning us. Martin Luther puts it this way get that idea of the law out of your conscience altogether. This law over you to condemn you, put that idea to death. It's impossible to live the Christian life knowing you have your Father's approval while at the same time feeling condemned by his law regularly. This is why Paul says elsewhere in Romans, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ, those under God's fatherhood. There's no more condemnation. The Father doesn't condemn. So here's our first point, is... In order to begin enjoying our sonship, one must build it on the foundation of justification by faith. Verse 24, Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Moving on now, verse 25. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Now Paul goes on to to describe what he's getting at here. And here's where it is very helpful to see another thing again, J.I. Packer, says, I I put it as as a a meditation in the first part of the bulletin, where Packer points out that in that time and place, this idea of adoption was conceived of a little bit differently than we would sort of instinctively conceive of it in our modern American society. In our society, you you hear the word adoption, and you just, I think, you probably think immediately, young person, maybe even baby." but certainly a young child under the age of accountability or whatever. That's what we think, and I'm thankful that that exists in in our culture, of course. But in that time and place, adoption was a concept, a completely different concept. It was for those who had already reached maturity and now had earned the right for families of privilege to say, hmm, I think I would like to pass on part of my inheritance to this fine young man. I'm an established business person. I'm looking for someone to take over my empire. Where can I find proven, fine young men and women? I'll move to New Haven because it has Yale University, and I'll find all sorts of remarkable, young, gifted people who have shown by their lives, they have earned the right for me to give them my privileges. That was adoption back then. That was adoption back then. That's, now we can understand what Paul is getting at here because he's contrasting adoption with that time period when you're a child. To our modern mind, that wouldn't, wait a minute, I don't contrast adoption to the time period I was a child. The time period of being a child is when you're adopted. No, 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 not back then. So don't let this next part confuse you. He's now going to contrast this time period when you're a child. In other words, there is no likelihood you'd ever be adopted when you're a child. You hadn't proven anything yet. And during that period, you may be an heir, verse 4, but as long as he is a child, he's no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, because he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And you see how Paul's building on his thoughts here. We had said already back in verse 24, that the reason why Jesus Christ came, it says it right there, was in order that we might be justified by faith. But now Paul builds on that and says, the reason that Jesus Christ came was so that we might be redeemed and might receive adoption as sons. Moving from the deepest truth to the highest truth, that you've received justification, but now you're in a position to receive adoption as sons. Verse 6, And because you are sons... God has sent the spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This reality, as we've said, is not only the highest privilege of the Christian life, but it must be the controlling paradigm. Again, though, what do we mean by highest privilege? Why does Paul show in this short passage here this progression of thought, that the coming of Christ was for this one incredibly vital and miraculous thing, justification by faith, but then it was also for something higher and better. And here's what this passage, but also the rest of Scripture shows, is that it really is a remarkable thing to be declared not guilty by the judge of all the universe. And even better than that, because remember, justification by faith is a two-part transaction. It's not just that my sins are removed, put on Christ, and so I'm not guilty anymore. But there's this other part of the transaction. There's this great exchange That Christ's righteousness is given to me. And so I'm not just declared not guilty. Good for me. I'm now morally neutral. But justification by faith is that you are also declared righteousness, given the imputed righteousness of Christ. You're wearing this now as your status. That's remarkable. That's the heart of the gospel. But it's actually not all that Christ came to do, and it's not enough. Because now you have a great relationship with the judge, the judge of all the world, but he's still the judge. And that's all he is to you. You have a relationship with him as creator, and a creature now that he approves of. That's that's good news. That's wonderful news. But it's not enough. Christ comes to make plain what the scriptures had always taught, but can't really be understood until he came in the flesh, born of a woman, that God is our Father. You have a far deeper and more profound and more intimate relationship with God than merely that he has forgiven you and approves of you. You actually have the most intimate relationship possible in all the universe. So now we move on to this idea that it must be the controlling thought, the normative category of the Christian life. In other words, once we receive and dwell upon and meditate upon this good news that God is our Father, everything changes. Everything changes. Now, how do you sum up everything? Do you put it in a thousand different categories? You know, 1.2 with 29 zeros after it, categories... I'm going to put it into four categories, and it's sort of in the takeaway, and this is how we're sort of structuring the church-wide retreat next weekend, that this awareness that God is our Father changes everything. First of all, it changes our relationship with God. Secondly, our relationship with others. Thirdly, our relationship with this life that he's given us. And finally, our relationship with ourselves. I think that kind of covers everything. So, I'm sure there isn't that much to say about everything. I'm sure we can get this sermon done in just a few more minutes. Well, of course, we could go on the rest of our lives, and that's the point. If this if this really is the controlling paradigm of the Christian life, and you put these glasses on, and now you get to meditate on this truth the rest of your life. So let's just say a few concise things about that today. From this passage, we see that previously there is this idea... That your relationship with God is mediated through the law. That the law is the guardian. The law will report back to God how you are doing, what your performance is like. But now, with adoption, everything changes in your relationship with God. As we've been talking about, He becomes your Father. Look at the sweetness of verse 6. Because you are sons, God has sent the very Spirit Of his Son into your very heart, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. What a remarkable sweetness that is, that new relationship with God, where coming from the heart naturally, you appeal to him as your Father. The beautiful complexity of this mysterious spiritual union that God has created is highlighted here especially when we pair it with a parallel passage in Romans 8 where Paul is also talking about God sending the spirit into our hearts crying abba father but it's really wonderful because in this passage the galatians passage the spirit is sent into our hearts and abba father cry issues forth but who is the one crying out we are Or, excuse me, I've got it backwards. The Spirit of God is. But it's the Romans passage that makes plain that that same Abba Father comes forth from the heart, but it's our hearts calling forth. And getting it it backwards is actually sort of part of the point, that there's this sweet union where, like, the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing, where you're in step with the Spirit of God and in true worship and calling out to God as your Father... You, you've, you've lost the distinction anymore between what, was this a, a thought that, that uh, was completely alien to me and the Spirit put it in my heart and now I'm responding or has this come from my new heart which he's given me and he's nurtured and disabled over the years and now he's empowering. I don't know. It's a chicken or egg type question. That this prayer relationship with God where we call him this most intimate of terms, Abba, Father, That's a completely different relationship than a relationship with God mediated through the law. Again, Peter is our test case here as you read the context of his behavior in the book of Galatians. And you turn back just a chapter and you see how Paul had to rebuke him. And he says in chapter 2, I had to condemn him. I had to oppose him to his face or I had opposed him to face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, what elsewhere the scriptures we talk about as the Judaizers, he had been eating and fellowshipping, having the Lord's Supper with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. That essentially his conscience, he was living free, with the free conscience before God, fellowshipping, with Jew and Gentile alike, but then the law comes back in the person of these messengers from James. And the law is telling him, you're fellowshipping with the uncircumcised in ways that are too intimate. God opposes that. And so Peter allows his relationship with God now to be once again mediated by the law, the law coming in. Paul gets to the point later in the book of Galatians where he he says, uh, this is the whole idea of chapter 5, verse 1. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Do not do what Peter did in that season of his life. Don't allow your conscience to be burdened again by the law, which, by the way, is if it's from God, it's a pure and holy law. There's nothing wrong with what it's saying. But don't allow your relationship with God to now be mediated by the law condemning you. No, no, stand firm in your freedom. So our relationship with God, God changes. He becomes our father, and we cry out just instinctively. It becomes the Christian word for God. We call him father. But secondly, of course, we talk about how this, if this really is the controlling paradigm of the Christian life, it certainly has to change my relationship with others. And being as simple as possible, there are really only two types of human beings. Those that have received this justification by faith, this adoption to the family, and those that have not yet. And if you have received it, you must by definition be realizing that every other believer has received this same privilege as well. And again, sorry, Peter, but with your permission, Paul uses you as the test case here. Peter is the test case of allowing that that what happened when he lost his little round top, when he lost his sense of God as his father, he immediately also lost the sense of, that Christians that weren't exactly like him were also his brothers and sisters. He lost that sense. He lost that sense. When you allow something else to mediate your relationship with God, apart from this realization of sonship, then that something else is going to be something that plenty of other people don't measure up to. So if you allow your being a male to be the measure, or being a female to be the measure, then we hear what Paul says here. There's neither male nor female. If you allow being a Jew to be the measure, or being a non-Jew to be the measure, we hear what Paul says here. There's neither Jew nor Gentile. If you allow your economic status, as it were, I'm an employee, even a slave, or so I work hard, or no, I'm a boss. I don't owe anybody anything, if you allow that, then those that don't have that are lesser to you. This is immediately what happens, because there's a great conspiracy afoot. And so there's a backwards diagnostic tool we can always use. If you find yourself looking down upon a fellow believer, not considering them as your brother and sister, as one in Christ, as it says here in verse 28, then it's almost certainly the case that we've lost a little round top in that season of our lives and our conscience. We have forgotten our own sonship. We're thinking we somehow have earned a status and someone else hasn't. But when we receive sonship as this gift of grace, we're just glad that everybody else who's a believer is in the family too. They are our brothers and sisters. It transforms everything and then those that aren't yet believers. If it's true that Christ came, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons, if that's true, then those that have not yet received that adoption as sons... are still on the receiving end of God's mission. They are potential brothers and sisters. If we immediately divide people off as unredeemable, and we know what happens, of course. You consider someone other. As soon as you put them in that category of other, Now they're unredeemable. You begin to depersonalize them. You no longer think of them as an individual, a miraculous, statistically impossible person. You no longer think of that. You just depersonalize them. They're just one of a blob of humanity. And then you fundamentally dehumanize them. They're just part of the blob. And then it can even lead to demonizing them. Whenever that happens, again, we can do the backward diagnostic. It's almost entirely the case that every single time whenever we've done that, it's because we've lost the little round top. We've forgotten our own sonship. That God is a father who sent his son into this world to redeem those under law. We see people on the other side of this belief gap, and we see they're under the law. So what's Jesus say about those people? He says he's sent for them. And so we begin to see others... Not as just discarded other, this category where we dehumanize and then depersonalize and then demonize, but rather as potential future brothers and sisters. Changes everything. Third thing, of course, is if it's true that this is the controlling paradigm of the Christian life, then it certainly needs to be the glasses that we wear to help us understand this particular life that God has given us. I think one of the reasons why we don't dwell more regularly on the fact that our own lives are profoundly unique, a statistical impossibility, are a miraculous reality. I think one of the reasons why we don't, and this is an okay reason, but it's just that we look around and our lives just sort of feel like normal. Like I I know a lot of people kind of who have my sort of stage of life and, there's nothing all that exceptional about me, and that's actually there's great humility there. That's a good thing, but there can be something dangerous about that too, because you're losing this reality. Now, wait a minute. If you have a if you if you just have a, a, a distant creator God, you can run with that thought all day long, and it won't ever really be changed much. But if you have a Father in Heaven, I think in every sermon I try to work in a Simpsons reference at least once, and so. Uh, you know, there's the time where Homer Simpson is praying at the dinner table. And uh, he says, thank you, God, for Bart for, and for Lisa, the two children that you've given us. Now, they have three children. So his, his wife says, Homer, you forgot Maggie. We have three children. And he goes, don't be silly, Marge. Don't be silly. He's just forgotten that he had a third child. You can laugh more loudly than that. I guess, I guess it loses something in the translation. To me, it's hilarious. And that's part of the Isaiah version of that. It was not necessarily meant to make us laugh, but this whole idea of can a mother who bore a child forget her own child? That's unthinkable. And Isaiah went on to say, and yet actually sometimes it happens. But you've got a father in heaven that, that would never happen. To the degree to which you feel like your life isn't making a difference or have the value, the potential to make any difference. You're insane and the victim of a conspiracy. The world, the flesh, and the devil have conspired to trick you and teach you that you're just a normal thing, not making much of a difference. No, 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 no. You're conceiving of a God who's distant and a creator who is, you are somewhat oblivious to him. You're like, your God is Homer who forgets that he's got a third child. But the God of the Scriptures is a Father. It's unthinkable, as the Isaiah text says, that He would forget you or not have a profound purpose for you. And every moment, in fact, every day of your life, normal things make the angels rejoice. One of you came and helped us weed our front and backyard. That seems normal. That made me rejoice. I'm not even an angel. Normal things make the angels rejoice because you're demonstrating that this world that God has made matters. And every particular vocation, assuming it's consistent with the law of God and not some sort of theft or bribery type of vocation, makes a profound difference to statistically impossible human beings who are miracles, and you're changing their lives by simple things, by music, by meals by knowledge, by everything that you would do. You can't think that way if you've got a distant God or a Homer Simpson deadbeat dad or whatever, or a slave master or a relationship with God mediated by the law, but you can and must and do and will think that way when you receive that God is your father. We live with, it changes how we live with great success in this life, We don't take the credit for it. We give all glory to God. It changes how we live with great suffering in this life. We do not receive it as God condemning us. We Christians who believe that God is their father never receive suffering as condemnation or punishment. Get that word out of your vocabulary. It's a training and it's a privilege to enter into the sufferings of Christ. There's... Decades' worth of sermons on that. And so our fundam- fundamental relationship with this life God has given us changes. And then finally, our fundamental relationship with ourself changes. Kevin and I had a, had a, um, a professor in common at seminary, a counseling professor, and he helped us to see from the scriptures that there's these categories in, in the, that, that, that are true of the human psyche, Simply put, categories of sin and shame. Sin is a category having to do with our failing to live up to God's law. And that's where justification by faith comes in. We are forgiven and we're given the righteousness of Christ. That handles the sense of sin. But shame is deeper because shame is an identity issue. Your conscience can be feeling fine as you think through your thoughts and words and attitudes, and yet you can just still feel like your life isn't worth living. There might be something just deeply turned inward about, about ourselves and our, our sense of shame, as if, uh, you know, Pascal puts it this way, that what a mystery we human beings are, just the great freaks of this universe. That we are no different than the angels in one respect and no different from the beasts in another respect. We are the highest and the lowest of all God's creatures at the same time. What are we to do with ourselves? And so here in this last thing, this receiving of our adoption and rejoicing in our adoption, sons and daughters, it goes higher than just simply dealing with the necessity of the sin. In our, in our natures and in our actions. But it goes so deeply into our, our very core identity that now you receive as your deepest identity no longer that you're a male or a female, no longer your ethnic or religious background or lack thereof, no longer your economic status or lack thereof. But your deepest identity becomes not merely... I'm forgiven by the creator of the universe, the judge of the universe. Your deepest identity becomes God sent his own son into this world, born of a woman, born under law. He entered into my world and my identity to make me a son or a daughter. The book of Hebrews goes on and on about this, this idea that it's just not sufficient to conceive of a Christ that would come down only so far to save us. We have to conceive of him as coming down all the way into our very humanity, taking on our flesh and blood. I love the whole like new... Kevin's talked about it, right? The, The whole new... Upswing of superhero movies. You know, these comic book characters from my childhood now being put on the big screen. Some of them are just like remarkable in their role models, etc. Oh boy, we sure need more than a superhero to save us. We need one that would take on our flesh and blood, as it says here in chapter 4. Born of a woman, born under the law, verse 4. And Hebrews goes on and says it in such a way that the early church fathers put it this way. They said, what Christ does not take on, he cannot redeem. That was their way of saying, he took on your full humanity. If he only took on your intellect, then he can only redeem your intellect. If he only took on your emotions, he can only redeem your emotions. If he only took on your will, he can only redeem. He took on all of your humanity. Sonship changes your fundamental identity, your sense of self is now shame-free. You are a son or daughter of God. That changes everything. It both makes us live with a dignity and a purpose in every minute, and it also makes us live with a deep humility and gratitude every minute. Now, when we get away on a church retreat next week, as hopefully a whole bunch of us will be able to do, there's really more extended times to walk in the woods and for self-reflection but really, every single worship service is designed to be a time of personal renewal. And I want us to think about this. As I sort of alluded to in my, in my prayer, it's, it's, it's somewhat of a good thing that when we are called to prayer, that the first words out of our mouth very, very often are, Father, Father in heaven. That's somewhat of a good thing. We've been taught this model in the Scriptures in the New Testament. But what Paul is inviting here, and he's using again Peter as the case study of someone that knew all of that, but for a season of his life was not internalizing it, was not deeply allowing himself to be renewed in the good news of this truth. What Paul is getting at here is that he is pleading with the Galatians, and by the Holy Spirit, the church is always pleading with ourselves ourselves let us be renewed in this good news that God is our Father. Don't just simply let it roll off your tongue and that be that. There's a remarkable scene in the movie, Goodwill Hunting. If you've seen that movie, the first one where we met Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, and if you know something of the background of that movie, uh, Matt Damon is this wonder kid who can just a mathematical genius, but his life is deeply, deeply troubled and disturbed, and he's violent, and he's, he's got so many deep issues And so he, as part of a court plea agreement, he has to meet with a counselor. And he meets with Robin Williams, who is the actor playing the part of this this counselor. And through the course of that, Matt Damon, or the characters, Good Will Hunting, um, his life comes out, his background, these deep issues of sin and shame both. And as it were, he really is the picture of one that had no father in this world or in heaven. He was an orphan. He was a foster kid, and he'd been abused in home after home after home after home. And in the climax of the movie, after this long process of relationship formed, Robin Williams finds his his moment with um, um, Will Hunting. And he says to him, Will, it was not your fault. This abuse, cigarettes out on your back and on your arms. It was not your fault. And if you remember the scene, what does Will say? He says, I know. I know it wasn't my fault. And he takes a half step closer. It was not your fault. I know. I, I know it was not your fault. I know. I, I know it was not my fault. You, I, you've told me that. I, I get it. Will, it was not your fault. Stop Stop fooling with me. What, just You're wasting my time. Will, it was not your fault. And then Will gets furious with it. And he begins weeping. Don't tell me that unless it's true. He thinks he's being played again. And the counselor is not taken aback. He takes another half step forward and strengthens his grip and says, it was not your fault. And finally, there's this breakthrough. And he's internalized. Now... The great conspiracy against our little round top, <laughs> against our sense that God is our Father, there is a big part of that where that illustration is exactly parallel. There's a big part of it that is not your fault. It is not your fault that the devil hates you. That is not your fault. <laughs> that is not your fault that forces that were in play in the culture of this world have been conspiring against you. That, But, of course, parts of our stiff-arming God are our fault. And so no illustration is perfect. But that is what worship is for. That is what Kevin said again this morning and what is said in the introduction to worship every single week. We're not just going to the motions here. We are entering into a time of real renewal. So, brothers and sisters, it is good news that God has made you his son or his daughter in Christ. Receive, meditate, dwell upon that deeply, holistically, and abidingly in Christ. Let's pray. You are a great God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And by your Spirit, you are in our hearts crying out, Abba, Father, and teaching us how to cry out instinctively, Abba, Father. We praise you, we thank you, we ask you to keep that work going in our lives, in our church, and in this world. In Christ's name.